Hey guys, this is Rolf. Just a little heads up before this episode begins. It's actually an episode about Scott Fitzgerald's famous 1925 novel, The Great Gatsby. But before we start, I wanted to give you a little inside baseball on how I record these episodes. I typically record the interviews or conversations a few weeks in advance, then send edits to my producer, Justin, who sends me a mix down a few days before the episode debuts. The conceit of this episode is that I got together some old high school friends to talk about The Great Gatsby on Zoom. I figured it'd be a jokey throwback to the 1980s, back when we were teenagers, but when I got the edit back from Justin, I realized that my old friends were so smart and serious in their insights that this episode might make more sense if you reread the book before you listen to it. I plan to have another travel-themed episode soon, likely before the end of this week, but for now, please enjoy this unexpectedly deep dive into The Great Gatsby. And so I'll read you this party scene from the book. It's very decadent. It's very 1920s, but it's also kind of relatable. You know, it, there's, there's some things that might apply to drinking wine coolers behind Food for Less in 1988. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today's episode does double duty. At one level, it's a pandemic-era book club discussion of F. Scott Fitzgerald's 1925 book, The Great Gatsby, a classic jazz-age story which has been made into movies several times, including most recently a 2013 Baz Luhrmann version starring Leonardo DiCaprio. This short and entertaining novel has been taught in high school classes for decades, which brings me to the other angle of this episode— if you look at my first book, Vagabonding, you'll see that it's co-dedicated to two people. One is my father, George Potts, who appears on this podcast from time to time. And the other is a man named John Ferdine, my old senior year English teacher at Wichita North High School, who died a few years before my first book came out. Mr. Ferdine was a tough, no-nonsense teacher, a Korean War veteran who demanded the most of his students, and whose writing feedback I sought for years after I graduated from high school and who gave me some essential advice just as I was transitioning into professional writing. I think there's something unique about your relationship to writing and reading when you're figuring out who you are as a teenager. And since high school English class was such a key part of my development as a writer and a thinker, I wanted to recreate the experience of Mr. Fredine's class by reconvening a few people who were in that class with me 30 years ago. This was a weirdly easy task during pandemic lockdown when my friends were more than happy to get on Zoom and talk about The Great Gatsby in the manner of our old high school English class. And when I first had the idea to do this, I imagined the resulting podcast discussion would mix a nonchalant response to the book with a lot of jokes about wine coolers and my old mullet hairdo since we were classmates in the late 1980s. But as it turned out, my friends showed up with so many serious insights into The Great Gatsby that the discussion went far beyond its novelty. This in mind, while reading The Great Gatsby isn't mandatory to enjoy this podcast, it might not hurt to at least re-familiarize yourself with its plot and themes, or at least check out one of the movie versions. There's a lot of free audio and online versions of The Great Gatsby out there. I'll put some links to those in the show notes. The Great Gatsby is about a mysterious man named Jay Gatsby, who lives in the new money town of West Egg on Long Island, and is fixated with his former lover, a now-married woman named Daisy Buchanan, who lives across the harbor in the old money town of East Egg. Other important characters include Daisy's rich jock husband Tom Buchanan, Tom's working-class mistress Myrtle, Daisy's glamorous lady golfer friend Jordan Baker, Gatsby's shady business partner Wire Wolfsheim, and perhaps most importantly, Gatsby's West Egg neighbor Nick Carraway, whose unique sensibility narrates the story. The book has been called a great American novel for its examination of longing, love, loneliness, and what wealth means in the context of the American dream. It's set in the roaring 20s year of 1922, and it's worth noting that this was just four years after the Spanish influenza pandemic outbreak of 1918. The Great Gatsby didn't sell well when it first came out, but it's now considered a classic and sells a half a million copies each year. The book's author, F. Scott Fitzgerald, was just 28 years old when it was published, and his life story has a lot in common with the story he tells in the book. Now, since The Great Gatsby deals with American social class and mobility, I should probably address that in the context of the kids I talk about the book with. I call them kids because I knew them when I was a kid. Now we're all in our late 40s. My parents were public school teachers, which makes me about as middle class as it gets, although I didn't travel much as a kid and didn't see New York until I was 23 years old. 
Joining me in this conversation is my old friend Kay Monk Morgan, who you might recall appeared with their grandfather John Monk in episode 96 of Deviate. Kay grew up poor. Her mom was and still is the lunch lady in an elementary school, and Kay has been working in various jobs since she was 12 years old. Kay was actually the prom queen our senior year, and we like to give her a hard time about that. She won a full-ride scholarship at Wichita State University, where she now works as a high-level administrator. Also joining us is Aaron Perry O'Donnell, who grew up straddling the working and middle class in a Catholic family of 10. She was on the swim team in yearbook and plenty of honors classes back in the day. After years of working as a journalist and freelance writer, she now owns and operates a community woodworking studio in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Rounding out my Great Gatsby discussion group is my old friend Tom Davis, who grew up in a working-class home not too far from where I lived. His family didn't have health insurance, and he qualified for free school lunches, and because he transferred in from a Catholic school sophomore year, he didn't get placed in any honors classes until we were seniors. Tom now works as an English teacher at Sumner Academy in Kansas City, Kansas, and because he's taught the Great Gatsby to various classes for nearly 20 years now, he's the one who leads the discussion, using more or less the same Socratic dialogue technique that Mr. Ferdine used in our class back in the day. Our Zoom discussion actually lasted almost four hours. I've cut it back to the most relevant hour of making sense of the Great Gatsby. As I might have done back in high school, I finished The Great Gatsby at the last minute, just hours before we were scheduled to talk about it. I think it was the fourth time I'd read it in as many decades, and I think I enjoy the book more every time I read it. As we talk about the book, we try to make sense of just what it is that's great about The Great Gatsby, both in terms of the story as we see it in the novel and the movie, and the way its narrator Nick Carraway presents the characters to us. Since this is a book that deals so much in class and wealth, we start by talking about the concept of privilege, particularly since Nick Carraway uses that word on the very first page of the book. Let's listen in. It's actually a very Midwestern take on how he should uh, address his privilege. He talks about how his father actually told him, you know, basically not to be full of himself and not to be judgmental. Right. He says, uh, whenever you feel like criticizing anyone, this is, this is Nick's dad. Just remember that all of the people in this world have not had the privileges that you've had. Mm -hmm. um, so literally, it does use the word privilege. Yeah, you're and right. So in a way, in a way, I think Fitzgerald is 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 trying to establish Nick as a reliable narrator. You know that that Nick is is this non-judgmental person who's observing things um, because people are judging Gatsby. People are gossiping about Gatsby, right? Um, they're judging him in both ways. I mean, I think there's a certain part of people in this book who think he's amazing. They don't really see him at the party, but they're enjoying his parties, and they may think maybe he's a criminal, but they are enjoying his place. And there's there's the East Egg people who just think he's a little bit vulgar, right? So I think that's interesting. And then you have these these different. Um, again, you you can really split hairs with class too. You know, there's a sense at which Nick is second cousins with Daisy, but maybe not as rich as they are. Uh, that he's living in this little cottage. And so he's sort of occupying a kind of class that's more established than Gatsby, but less um, extravagant as, as Tom and Daisy. And um, yeah, so just from the very beginning, basically in, in, in a time before privilege was sort of a, a catchphrase for how we should see things as a filter, Nick was saying, look, I understand how this works and I'm going to try to be fair about this. Um, and it, I'm really interested in Nick as a um, as a narrator. Also, I like how in the beginning Nick also talks about how he sort of attracts oddballs and bores. You know, people confide in him, and it feels like that's who I am as a travel writer. Like if you find the, mm. the, the guy in the village in in um, you know Zambia whose whose family is tired of hearing of him, will come and start talking to me. So I think that there's anyone who wants to narrate a story. That's a good talent to have. Is basically patience with sort of narcissistic people is, is a good talent to have. And it feels like maybe that's Nick's something that Nick has in his arsenal as the narrator of this story. You know, I, I think that the notion of, of privilege was interesting, particularly juxtaposing that the actual text, the book uh, and the movie um, that African-Americans were a prop in the movie um, mm -hmm. and were hardly discussed at all other than with disdain for desire for equality. So even in a text that's talking about privilege, the greatest level of disprivilege or disprivilege is a made up word, um, unparalleled um, 
inequity isn't even really mentioned as a thing. Um, and so that struck that struck me in, in a sense. Yeah. Hey, there's a scene in the movie that I, I was really fascinated that uh, Learman chose to incorporate. It's the scene where Gatsby picks Nick up in his roadster after the party. They go for a drive into the city where they're going to meet with Meyer Wolfsheim. And Nick says, as we crossed Blackwell's Island, a limousine passed us, driven by a white chauffeur in which sat three modish Negroes, two bucks and a girl. I laughed out loud as the yokes of their eyeballs rolled toward us in haughty rivalry. And then he says, anything can happen now that we've slid over this bridge, I thought, anything at all, dot, dot, dot. And what you just said, I was interested because that's a prevalent part. Tom Buchanan has this, this reference to Stoddard's, um, you know, when they're having dinner in chapter one, he's concerned about the rise of the colored people and yeah. so on and so forth. And so it's, this, it's yeah. almost this subtextual aspect of the novel um, and I, I thought that was fascinating. You pointed that well, out. And juxtapose that to once they get to, again, going to the movie, not necessarily depicted in the book, they get to the, um, to the meeting with, with uh, what's his name? Meyer Wolfsheim, yeah. Meyer Wolfsheim. The black women who are dancing mm-hmm. on the stage, scantily clad mm-hmm. as props for the, the wealthy men that are there we can't marry them, but we we can ogle at their beauty and their mm-hmm. voluptuousness and their sensuality on a stage. And so that that wasn't lost on me. Um, probably not something that stands out when most people read it. Um, but one of those things that that when you when you ask what was great about The Great Gatsby, I obviously read this book in high school. Mm-hmm. I remember expressly purchasing a copy in college because I was collecting every year I would buy a book that I wanted to read just for fun. And I wanted to build a collection. I still have that text copy. It's downstairs. I can't access it. So I downloaded both a digital copy and an auto copy for this particular experience. But I didn't remember this book at all. Kay, I'm curious to know if you noted any other specifically African-American moments in the book, because obviously these are authorial choices. Um, and there's some historical differences, like Nick's servants are Finnish, right? You know, yes. if this was 2020, they'd be Guatemalan or something, right? So at, at, at the time, it was not unusual to have a house cleaner who was from Finland, which would seem very strange right now. And when he mentions this, the, these black folks in the, in the limousine, that's, I mean, that seems like a very specific detail is that mm-hmm. it's doing multiple kinds of work at once. Basically, he's saying, this is our changing world. And the language is sort of creepy now, but in like Negroes and the yolks of their eyes and you know, that's sort of strange. But the fact that he's just making this observation that like, look at this world. Um, and so one other moment that, that Fitzgerald decides to include an African-American character is when it's the witness who identifies yes. the, the yellow car. Now, I'm not sure if I missed any other references, but it feels like those are the two big ones. That, mm-hmm. in, in an interesting way, Fitzgerald, made, one, he shows sort of nouveau riche opulence that applies to the black experience in, in sort of a nodding familiarity sort of way. And then this honest guy who steps forward is, is, is an African-American guy after the accident at a time when, when a lot of the white people in the neighborhood are just trying to get a look at the bloodstains, you know? Right. And so those were authorial choices. And I'm, I'm wondering if you saw any other, obviously there's a lot of class going on this, but did, Kate, as a non-white person, did you see any racial textures in this, in the book well, itself? Well, just the very notion that he would refer to the, the African-Americans at the time in the car on the bridge as a buck, right? Mm, which yeah, is yeah. a- Yeah, that got my attention. Which, yeah. you, I mean, you don't get any more um, debased as a human mm-hmm than referring to a, a, a term ident- that identified slaves that were being sold at market. Animal imagery, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I just thought even the good guy that I wanted to really like, i.e. Nick, even in his language, particularly juxtaposed to his discussion about privilege, 
he didn't he didn't didn't seem to recognize his own in that space. Mm-hmm. You're not the first person that's brought up those observations. Like in my class discussions, I've had students observe some, make some of those similar observations, which brings the question, you know, we have this narrator, Nick, and Rolf, you mentioned him being intrigued by him. And Kay, you said you really want to like this guy. There's some aspects about Nick and maybe Aaron and Rolf and Kay, you can sort of observe. The more I've read it multiple times, right? And I see Nick, and we ask ourselves, this is one of those terms in English, is Nick a reliable narrator? Is he one that you have a certain amount of, does he have credibility with you to an extent? Um, To what extent does he have credibility with you? And where does he seem a little, I don't know, suspect in some ways for you? Because this is his story, right? And he makes up that point at the end of the novel that, if it were um, somebody else's story, like Jordan Baker's story, but this is my story. Um, what do you, Rolf, I'll just kind of start with you because you said you were intrigued by him and then let Kay and Aaron jump in on that. Well, I think we blend into Nick and Fitzgerald, right? You know, there's an extent to which Nick is narrating the novel, but he, you know, Fitzgerald is narrating the novel through Nick. Buck is, uh, is such a hard word to read now. And so is this a reflection on Nick's class? Was, was Fitzgerald being ignorant or was that a very s- specifically chosen word to reflect just how narrow Nick's world of race is, for example? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I know that Nick, Nick's language is really amazing. Um, like the way he describes Gatsby, Gatsby's parties, the way he describes the young women in the room is just, um, is just amazing. Uh, as far, I'll let the, the women in this crowd talk a little bit more about where he might be unreliable. I think he sort of struggles on what to make of Gatsby, but it feels to me like he's being fairly honest, you know, that in, in a way he says that he tells Gatsby, oh, all these other people are rotten. He's trying to make Gatsby feel better, I guess. But in a way he sort of, he sort of, he sort of burned out on Gatsby too. You know, it feels like he hasn't really found a center in Jay Gatsby. Um, so I'm not sure. Like right now, it's one of those things where like I was on Nick's side from page one because I feel like if Nick was a travel writer, he would have been my kind of travel writer, right? Um, and so I'll have to think about this. What do, Aaron and Kay, what do you think about how reliable he is as a narrator? I think that while I'm sitting here thinking about this, the, um, the reliability is always in question when you have a first person you know, narrator, not to get too in the weeds of literary stuff. I'll leave that to Tom. (laughs) But yeah, anytime someone is um, in first person, you know, you have to account for their bias. It's not an omniscient point of view. Um, I think, like you said earlier, uh, the the author goes, um, goes to lengths to establish that he has a perspective on the world that isn't terribly, um, single-minded or tunnel visioned. He's, he's seen things. Um, and he's been told to, you know, understand that he comes from, um, things that not everybody has. So I think as far as his reliability, um, in his perception of Gatsby is, like I said, he doesn't want to like him, but he's seduced and he's seduced in a way maybe Gatsby felt seduced by Daisy or Gatsby was seduced by her money. There, um, there is a line that I did not remember from before, but I read it uh, this time that said, they're always trying to pin down what it is about Daisy's voice. And they finally say there's money in it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow. I mean, that just blew me away. So everyone's kind of being sucked in and seduced by these, these things that simply can't last. Um, and I think that's that's what happens to Nick against his better uh, efforts and judgment. Um, it's, you know, not, I wouldn't call it a bromance, but he is certainly just pulled into this orbit uh, and feels protective of Gatsby for some reason that I may not yet understand. So when someone has that sort of 
um, you know, attraction and this gravitational pull to another person, how reliable are they? I might jump on before, Kate, about one thing about Nick is that there's a really interesting part where he talks about his other life, like his bond trading life. Basically, he says, look, reader, this is just part of what happened to me there, which I thought was interesting. It feels very <laughs> realistic that he's saying, look, this is my this is my Gatsby and Daisy part of my story. I actually spent a lot of time working. And then even more interesting is the sort of underwater or understated sort of fling he has with, with Jordan Baker. Like it, it, like there's actually a scene where he, they, they sort of embrace and it doesn't really seem like there's a secret. I mean, there's just very arm's length love affair for lack of a better word between him and Jordan, which is really interesting. So reliable or not, um, part of what makes Nick interesting is that he says, look, I'm, I'm not telling you all about myself. I'm telling you about the Gatsby things. I spent a lot of time trading bonds. And then also, well, here's something that happened with me and Jordan, but I'm not really going to tell you that much about me and Jordan. He left lots of space, but of the characters, he's the only one that to me seemed to have authentic relationship and empathy for that he actually saw the people that he was engaging with, whether that was the, the absolute um, um, yearning that Gatsby had for whatever part of, of Daisy uh, be it her money, her, her, the passion, whatever, um, Jordan for who she was and what she could bring to the table for him and that she, he enjoyed her company. Um, I think even with Tom Buchanan, he gave him space, um, mm-hmm. to be kind of the guy that was the guy. Um, so in as much as I think he observed all those things and could share, but I didn't see a whole lot of judgment other than, you know, when it comes down to it, these things are all shiny. You're Mm -hmm. really core, as your core, you're a really good guy. When he first describes Jordan Baker, it's really amazing. Like the way he captures her, it's like, wow, I want to, I want to be around this woman. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, she, she, she's tough. She's aloof. Um, he, He sort of recognizes, I mean, there's, there's something about the way that the Nick narrator describes women especially Jordan and Daisy, um, that feels like a young straight guy way of describing things. Interestingly, um, Myrtle is an interesting choice for Tom, right? Tom is this studly, you know, football star who's, who's sort of a jackass. And actually, there's also choices. He could have, I'm sure that Tom read, you know, the sports magazines, but he actually was talking about the racist shit that Tom was reading, right? So that's a choice on, on Nick when he's characterizing Tom, even though he sort of gives Tom space, as Kay said. He's also describing him as a guy who's talking about the Nordic race being stained and stuff, right? So in a way, Nick sort of expresses his disapproval just by describing certain aspects of what people do. I think he describes his fascination with Jordan by the way we get those descriptions of her. And then Myrtle is sort of this, she's older than Tom. She's not described as, as like a, a, a runway model, good looking person. You know, she's, she's sort of physically strong. She's married. She's married to sort of this milk toast mechanic guy, right? So that's interesting to describe. That's just interesting as that's filtered through Nick too. And we're sort of stuck with Nick as our narrator. You know, it'd be interesting to just try and put Tom in a corner and ask him why he's with, with Myrtle. Um, that you get this other take on Myrtle, like the descriptions of Myrtle don't take your breath away like they do the descriptions of, of, of yeah. Jordan and, um, and of Daisy. So that was interesting. Just, just in, in what he chooses to describe about these people, that could reveal his limitations as a person. It's like, well, this is what I see about Gatsby. This is, what I, this is how I choose to describe Daisy, in fact, some of the language just blew me away. It, it made me wonder if, like, Fitzgerald had overheard it. Like, Daisy is at some point talking about, like, I want to put you in that pink cloud and push you around. And, and Jordan is talking about New York as a place where it feels like fruit is falling off the trees. You can catch it. That language is so specific. Um, and, it, and, it, and, again, it's, it's, it's kind of beautiful. It sort of makes you want to meet these women, right? I don't feel like we get that with Myrtle. <laughs> uh, and, and so um, – so it's funny, Tom, thank you for bringing this up. It didn't even occur to me in the term in terms of what Nick's limitations are as a narrator. But there are times where it's like, God, I want to be on that couch with Daisy, by the way he describes it. I never wanted to be on a couch with Myrtle, right? <laughs> the way he <laughs> describes Myrtle did not make me want to hang out with Myrtle. So, Yeah, I find myself every time I read it wondering, 
how that happened. Cause you just, you know, yeah. getting gas one day and Myrtle's, is it just cause she's available, makes herself available. They talk about her having some kind of sensuality, like, you know, sort of curvy and, and blousy is, is a great old term that I really love. That's what she makes me think of, but yeah. How do you go from Daisy to Myrtle? Are you just, is he someone who just always needs something different? We're talking about all of these relationships, and uh, I'm going to throw out one of those literary terms, Kay, you used it earlier, juxtaposition. And you were talking about it with the film and the book, but Fitzgerald juxtaposes so many things in this novel, the relationships, right? Um, we see all, you know, Tom and Myrtle's uh, relationship juxtaposed with Gatsby and Daisy's, right? Or even Nick and Jordan's. Uh, East Egg juxtaposed with West Egg. Um, even the structure of the novel, the novel is not chronological. One of the, actually the first things I do with students, uh, once they've read enough of the novel is put together a, a timeline, a chronology of Gatsby's dream, because it leads up to the events of the summer of 1922, but it goes back to events before, um, Gatsby goes off to war in 19. 19 or maybe even 19. 19, 1917 they're in Louisville and yeah, it goes back as early as 1917 so one of the first things that I have students do is actually create a chronology or a timeline of Gatsby's life to try to piece together what when does he meet Wolfshine when does he meet Dan Cody what happens along the, what happened with Daisy and all that kind of stuff to kind of make sense of that chronology because the the novel structured in these fragments right his remembrances of a summer his in chapter two where he parties with Tom and Myrtle in that apartment is juxtaposed with chapter three, Gatsby's party. So even the parties are kind of put side by side there um, for comparison and contrast. And so, but all of this centers back around, I mean, in some ways it's a romance, this relationship with Gatsby and Daisy and Aaron, it's funny you mentioned that quote uh, about her voice being full of money. Cause I was, my finger was on that highlight, even as you said that. Oh, no, way. <laughs> yeah, no, I was sitting there thinking that. And, there's several times earlier Nick says about Gatsby, he was at present a penniless young man without a past. And then it goes on to, he took, and he's talking about his relationship with Daisy, he took what he could get ravenously and unscrupulously. Yeah. Eventually he took Daisy one still October night. He took her because he had no real right to touch her hand. Mm -hmm. And wow. And then, you know, that, so that astounds me, Tom, yeah. even when you, you said that this is a story about love. To me, this is a story about greed yeah. nice. and wanting that which is not yours or readily affordable, whether it is Nick moving to become a bondsman and self-training because he wants this life. He wants to create an opportunity or Tom who wants something that's not his because Although he has everything people could argue, he's still yet striving. So he's got to have Myrtle. Um, you've got uh, Gatsby, who has a woman who says, I love you now, but he's not satisfied until she's, he's, she says, I never loved my husband, right? Not enough for me to love you now. You want me to never have loved him and I can't give you that, right? So it's all, it, it spoke to me of, people wanting that which they don't have, striving for more, um, not recognizing the beauty and, and the space and the place that they've arrived. Um, everybody wants something they don't have. Well, this is something I think we'll, we're end up going to have to unpack a little bit, just the, the absolute lack of a core in, in Gatsby, which seems to apply to everybody who shows up to his parties. Um, and, you know, Tom, you described the party in, in, in the movie terms. I, I elected not to watch the movie last night because I was still sort of dazzled by the book. And so I'll read you this party scene from the book. It's very decadent. It's very 1920s, but it's also kind of relatable. You know, it, there's, there's some things that might apply to drinking wine coolers behind food for less in 1988, you know. So I'm going to read this to you. <laughs> Who did that? <laughs> <laughs> Not me, not behind food for less, but I'm sure I drank wine coolers someplace. Anyway, he says, the bar is in full swing and floating rounds of cocktails permeate the garden outside until the air is alive with chatter and laughter and casual innuendo and introductions forgotten on the spot and enthusiastic meetings between women who never know each other's names. 
The lights grow brighter as the earth lurches away from the sun, and now the orchestra is playing yellow cocktail music and the opera of voices pitches a key higher. Laughter is easier minute by minute, spilled with prodigality, tipped out at a cheerful word. The groups change more swiftly, swell with new arrivals, dissolve and form in the same breath. Already there are wanderers, confident girls who weave here and there among the stouter and more stable, become for a sharp, joyous moment at the center of the group, and then excited with triumph, glide on through the sea change of faces and voices and color under the constantly changing light. Suddenly one of these gypsies, in a trembling opal, seizes a cocktail out of the air, dumps it down for courage and moving her hands like a Frisco dances out alone on the canvas platform. A momentary hush, the orchestra leader varies his rhythm obligingly for her, and there is a burst of chatter as the erroneous news goes around that she's Gilda Gray's understudy from the Follies. The party has begun. Mm-hmm. So, you know... I mean, again, that's, that's, you, can, you can see that visually in the Boz Lerman movie sense of the word. But you can also see, uh, you know, sort of the, the teenager, there's a teenagenessness to sort of the power dynamics of a party and, and, the, and the casual introductions. Yeah. And, you know, basically, I don't know, the, there was just the way Nick through Fitzgerald describes these parties, it feels very well observed. It's like for some reason, Nick or Fitzgerald knew a lot of superficial, beautiful people um, who threw great parties. Yeah. Well, and what we, like when we do close readings of that passage, like I'll give students a page or a paragraph or that, that excerpt in particular, and maybe a little bit before that, we analyze that. And then we look at that with some of the language he uses later, like the very first line of chapter three from which you read that says the girls came and went, went like moths among the whisperings and the champagne and the stars this comparison of the girls to moths, but then we think about this and the party, the flitting about, but what often happens to moths who get too close to the flame, right? The disintegration. And by the end of the party, like those, um, those crates of oranges and lemons at the end of the party in chapter six are pulps. It's like everything that is full of life and glittery and shiny is reduced to either ashes, like the Valley of Ashes, or completely used up like the grape, uh, like the oranges and the lemons. So yeah, what you're talking about at its core, I think is what Fitzgerald's really trying to do is show the beauty and greatness of, of this, but also the ephemeral nature of it all in a way. And and it occurs to me, he's writing it, um, you know, five years before the market crash. Right. That, you know, changed the country forever. And between he's writing this, you know, um, just heady, hedonistic um, time between this great war, this pandemic and this crash to come. So it's this huge peak before a huge fall. And um, it, it, it feels like, I don't know, he's capturing this time almost as if you know nothing like that can sustain. This, this lack of appreciation for what you've accomplished, even with um, you know, the, the city, you see the, the building that's happening between New York City and juxtaposed to uh, Long Island and, and the beauty and the grass and the greenery and the gardens that, that are described both in the book and, and either version of the, the movie just, you know, juxtaposed or, or compared to the, the Valley of Ashes, and then you get to the city with all the, the city-scapes, um, there's, there's just never, there's not an appreciation, there doesn't seem to be an appreciation for any of what they have. Um, I, I, I was struck by Daisy describing her daughter mm-hmm. as, as a mother with children, to say I had a, basically I had a kid and she, I think she refers to it. Mm-hmm. What is that? Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, just not, not, there's no value placed on the things that we would imagine value would be tagged because there's value on the shiny. I think it's interesting too, that there is one, you talked about a, a list. He, uh, he lists, is it Nick or Jay who licks the, who lists the guests? 
um, Nick had written them on the back of a time, uh, a bus or a timetable and while okay. he was at a party. And so he's li- listing all the people who attended the parties there. Yeah. Well, another, another list he chooses to include is Jay's list from when he was a kid, yeah. which was so heartbreakingly specific. It sounded like a blog post, um, yeah. Yeah. from the year 2020. It's like when Jay was a kid, Rise from bread, 6 a.m., dumbbell exercise and wall scaling, 6.15 to 6.30. Study electricity, work, baseball and sports, practice elocution, um, general resolves, no wasting time at shafters, no more smoking or chewing, bath every other day, save uh, $5, crossed out $3 per week. That this is, this is a kind, the core that we have when Jay Gatsby had a core is such an American core that literally – there's, there's actually blogs and podcasts that talk about that sort of self-maintenance, self-improvement, self-discipline type right. stuff. There's, it's actually an illusion. Like one, one of those excerpts my students read is from Benjamin Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac, and it's his essay on moral development. And it's, it's exactly what Ben Franklin does. He creates a timetable and a list um, of, for self-improvement. And the American memoir as sort of a subgenre of memoir is, is very specific to that. Um, um, Frederick Douglass's memoir um, was modeled off of the structure of Ben Franklin's um, memoir. Um, and, and that list in the back of Gatsby very specifically connects to, if you look at in Benjamin Franklin's uh, list of moral development, very similar structure in the way it's constructed. And, and a lot of American memoirs are structured in that way of how to improve myself, how to overcome my circumstances and become, you know, to move up the ladder. And of course, Gatsby Daisy is his Jacob's ladder. It's his platonic ideal of having made it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Nick observes Gatsby's mansion as Kant would his church steeple, right? It's that great philosophical contemplation of, you know, here I am and where do I want to be and how do I get there? And that list at the end is that Franklin kind of formula of how you get there, how you do it. Well, I'm curious to know what you guys think about this. Just so much of what you're just talking about, Tom is, is so American. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I think at some point we should talk about like basically Jay builds his whole life around a girl. He fell in love with when he was 17. (laughs) Right. He fell in love with with uh, with uh, with with uh, Daisy when he was very young. And so it, in a way, he sort of has, has an adolescent vision of who he is. And perhaps there's something very adolescent about the American way of seeing the world. But then you're, you know, it hadn't occurred to me until you said that, Tom. But yeah, I mean. Ben Franklin influences the list that Jay Gatz has in that book, which is also 500 podcasts and blogs about self-improvement and self-discipline. It's a very part of the conversation and as i was thinking that it's like well what's the equivalent of jay gatsby's parties it's freaking instagram right everybody is trying on instagram they're trying to be they're trying to throw a jay gatsby party and it's just as empty as a jay gatsby party you know that you know what people put on instagram even travel instagram rarely connects with real life i think each generation has its own iteration of this you know like Right now, people are talking about how empty the baby boomer vision of eternal growth was, which means nothing in the time of pandemic, right? Well, this was set at another time when eternal growth was assumed and it crashed very soon in the late 1920s. So in a way, I think one reason why this is called the great American novel, it's these conversations that we can't stop having, you know, that we keep pretending to be people we're not. We keep falling in love with people who don't exist, you know? Anyhow, that it's it's so it's such a youth obsessed uh, story. Um, there there's stuff right from the beginning. Just and like you said, he he's still fixated on someone from when he was a boy. Um, you know, he may have been going off to war, but he was a very young man. Um, and it, it throughout, you know, Nick is fretting about turning thirty, and it, yeah, looking back on it. Um, from this point in life, it's like, you know, that's, it's such a fleeting time and they don't even know it. Fitzgerald was in the middle of it and he didn't even seem to know it, but we think culture, our culture now and American culture is youth obsessed and that's been built in for a long, long time. Um, well, that's interesting. I don't know that I've done the math on that to, to recognize that 
he was chasing a 17 year old boy's idea of perfection, even mm-hmm. if it was a 20 year old, right? Mm-hmm. Um, can we, I won't put you all out there, but I can think of the guy I dated when I was 17 <laughs> and 18 <laughs> and 20. And I don't know that he would make the cut these days. It, it, it's so interesting the way that age resonates as you read it at different times, because I think I read it without remembering it when I was a teenager. I read it in my 20s, and then I read it in my mid-30s, and I just I read it again yesterday. Wolfsheim says, basically, let me excuse myself. I'm an old man. I'm 50. Well, we'll be 50 before too long, right? <laughs> we're, we're a lot closer to Wolfsheim now. And then, you know, Nick you know, is worrying about turning 30. Tom is around 30. Uh, his older mistress is 35. Um, and a part of it... I was just intoxicated reading this book yesterday. And I think part of it is that I read a part of my 17 year old self is still there. And I sort of saw that light, you know, I sort of saw that time in life when everything hadn't happened yet and everything seemed possible. And I had a view of humans. I still believe that there were perfect women out there. You know, I still Mm -hmm. believe that there were perfect possibilities and that, um, uh, I, I think there's a very specific point of view that one has as a youth that's specific to not just Nick and Jay, but also the guy who wrote it, who was probably about 26 when he started writing it. Mm-hmm. Um, that in, in a way it's intoxicating to read, but I don't know if any one of us wishes we were back in the halls of North, North high as 17 year olds <laughs> dating the same people and having the pre- same preoccupations. We are sort of a, conglomeration of those selves along our way of formative development, you know? I mean, there's a part of that 17-year-old Rolf Potts still in you, right? And and every day we live making decisions. It's like you're having a huge board meeting in your brain and you have all of these different selves of yourself along the line, right? All the way back to your seven-year-old self and your three-year-old self and your 30-year-old self and your, now your soon-to-be 50-year-old self. And and they all have a say in where you're at. And so I guess the question is, at some point, we're always, this conversation, though, that we see in Gatsby, we're always struggling with that con- conversation with that self. So we beat on boats against the current, born back ceaselessly into the past. We're always going to be, in some ways, at odds with those other selves along our lines. I actually wrote down some numbers uh, in here, 1917 versus 1922, 1989 versus 2020. Uh, 30 versus 50, you know, just, just these ideas that this is a book that looks at, it's sort of a longing, you know, I said 17, I think it was 1917. Jay was probably older than 17. He was probably about 20 or 21 when he fell in love. But in a way he's, he's looking through this lens of his own life and he's still living through his ideals of the year 1917 when in fact it's the year 1922. Yeah. We're much further removed. We're 31 years removed from 1989 when we were teenagers, when we graduated from high school um, and, and hung, you know, shared the halls together uh, long ago. So that's maybe some thing, maybe all literature is this way. If you read a book at different times in your life, then you read it as different people. And that if you look at a book that looks at time in this way, then you're sort of first forced to look at time in this way too. Mm-hmm. I mean, what was it like for you guys to read it as people in your late forties quite recently? Did it, and keeping in mind that you knew you were going to talk about it with people you first met when you were a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, how did this resonate for you guys personally? I think I, I really um, did notice, like I was just saying about how um, they're, they're so driven by mm, the, their, their youth or to accomplish things by a deadline, you know, did any of you have that sense of, I need to do X by 30? Hmm, I don't yeah. know. Were you published? Did you have a book before you were 30? And did you intend to? And um, I didn't make such hard goals like that, but now, um, you know, my, my goal setting is, is a little bit different. I'll, I'll never be on like a 40 under 40 list that that's passed. Um, you know, things like that where there's these lists and other accolades that celebrate all you've done at such a young age. And so now, uh, who makes lists about people who are almost 50? Um, you know, now it's like, if you do something, if you accomplish something now, 
It's just sort of now you're average. You're not that's, original. You're average. <laughs> that sounds like the saddest country music song. I'm so sorry. Who, who, who <laughs> makes who makes lists about songs about people who are who makes lists about people turning fifty? <laughs> okay. Wow. When Casey Musgraves is fifty, maybe she'll write that one. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, no, it's um. Uh, reading it now, I, I think, like I said, there are certain things that probably went, flew right over my head 31 years ago. Um, and the, uh, it, it just, I think a lot of the interactions between men and women, I, at 18, I understood, you know, crushes. I understood longing in that young way. Um, and so Yeah, in a way, you can kind of look at it now and go, you know, they were just they were such such kids. But Gatsby never seems like a kid, at least in Nick's eyes. Um, He seems kind of timeless in a way. I think I don't think when I read it the first time, I thought they were all in their twenties. They seemed adults, older, you know. And I probably thought people in their twenties were adults, and now I know better about that too. Yeah, I think I'm struck by the fact that I have sons that are 22 and 20 years old, mm-hmm. um, and one of whom is in, in involved in his first like real relationship six months in, um, handling it very responsibly. At least it seems that way as a mother. But I too am struck with okay, these people were 28 years old. What the hell do you know at 28? And with the, the number of resources and access, you know, the more, the more money you have or the more things you have access to, the more trouble you can create. And I, I saw that as part of the, the continuum as well. Um, Cameron read this, his, I don't know if it was his senior year, but he and I had a conversation about it last night. And even his version of what he read and how he saw the story one of the things he said to me was, mom, wouldn't it, doesn't every girl want to be loved like Daisy was loved? And I was like, well, was it love? Was it infatuation? Was it, you know, that, that first kiss you ever had? That person always holds a special place, you know? Mm-hmm. Is, is it that or is it love? I, I don't know that he actually loved Daisy. He needed Daisy, but I don't know that he loved Daisy. And so in his thinking, he was like, oh, wow, that's not how I would assume, because I, I, I think girls just want us to be all over, you know, them. So I, I do think it is an interesting juxtaposition of how you see things, depending on, on where you are. And, and certainly as a mother of a 22 year old who's dating, that colored my vision of this story. I was like, oh, Daisy, whatever. We're going to have four or five daisies. You know, that's something that I often see. It, it, we, we've talked a lot about um, sort of the, his treatment of, of uh, race and uh, ethnicity, but his treatment of gender in this book, right? The women are portrayed very, very differently than, than the men, right? And like your son's comment, Cameron's comment, I've heard that in class discussions. Like I've heard girls actually say that. 17-year-old, gosh, the way, you know, that's just the way he treats you. But, you know, you think about that from a 17-year-old female perspective, Mm -hmm. in a certain circumstance, maybe that's their platonic ideal of that, which from our older perspective, oh, honey, you know, be careful if you run into that guy, you know, kind of thing. you know, or a Tom Buchanan or something like that. Cause you know, we see, we see that. Yeah. And having taught it now for multiple, for two decades now, I think first time I taught it, I think I was Gat or Nick's age, like 29 mm-hmm. or 29 or 30, your perspective changes. And, mm-hmm. and it's always interesting to see how the students react to it over the years as well. Mm-hmm. And, and yet it always invites stimulating conversation. Um, so, I mean, this this feeds into really broad um, philosophical questions. Like, what should money serve? If if money is empty, if it only makes for great parties uh, or sort of class stratification, then how how is money well spent? 
what is ideal love? You know, if not an idealized platonic sense of love that Jay is expressing for Daisy, what, how does love serve us? Like, how should love serve us? How should it be more complicated? I mean, you read, there's a lot of poet, uh, poems like um, uh, William Carlos Williams, uh, The Ivy Crown. He says, um, uh, we will it so and so it will be past all accident. It's a very sort of a dark-hearted love poem. It's basically saying we're, we're going to do the work and that's what love is, right? Um, and so you, you run into these questions where I think it's pretty easy to say, yeah, well, Jay's attitude towards, towards uh, Daisy is probably not realistic and a little bit creepy, right? Um, Jay's attitude towards money is probably not very sustainable and doesn't have a moral core. But then, the, then these, I think one thing that you're left with is that, well, what is the best way to do things? Is it, is it a good Midwestern, like if Jay would have stayed in North Dakota and, and married the girl down the street whose dad ran the dairy, and they had five kids, and then he got a job driving a taxi. Would that have been better? You know, right. um, and and again, it's it's. Um, I, I think that's why literature and other kinds of art, like movies, are useful because we have to. We think about things like this. We think about well, what happens to you when you get older? How does your perspective change? Um, because it'd be sad if we were jaded forty-nine-year-olds when we were seventeen. You know, there's an extent to right. which that we should be attached love in unrealistic ways at that age. But then also we use art to sort of exercise our muscles to think, hmm, well, what, what role should love serve? What role should money serve? Um, when I make lists, <laughs> are they gonna improve my life or send me down a rabbit hole that uh, ends me being shot in, front, in my swimming pool in, in West Egg, Long Island, you know? This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. But I have th three things that I wrote down that I really wanted to talk about in sort of a nerdy way, and I'm going to make them into a lightning round. So you can answer these questions if you want, yes or no. One, did Hugh Hefner get his idea for the Playboy Mansion from Jay Gatsby's parties? Absolutely. Yeah. Two, is Clip Springer the same person as Cato Kalin? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Could be. And three, is Daisy a manic pixie dream girl? Oh, for sure. A yeah. manic pixie dream girl? It's an idealized young woman um, who is everything maybe a man thinks they want, but mm -hmm. they're just, they're not real, I guess. What would you the, say? Well, there, in, in movies, this, this goes to a very popular, like a New York Magazine article that was written after a Cameron Crowe movie, I think where basically it's this sort of quirky, idealized woman who solves all the protagonist's problems and singularly understands him, right? Oh, there, there, there's, this, there's this person who can find the nerdy, shuffling protagonist, realize that he's actually a genius, and even though she's cute and quirky, she solves his problems. It's, it's like a person who doesn't exist in real life. And so it mm. struck me, this, this term didn't come into parlance until the last five or 10 years, but in a sense, Daisy is Jay's manic pixie dream girl. You know, she, she solves his problems in a narrative way that doesn't really have anything to do with Daisy, right? Yeah, she solves, she might solve his problems for a while, but what I really got to again in that scene in the hotel is when he is pressuring her to say she never loved Tom, totally gaslighting. I mean, <laughs> so this ideal fantasy woman of his, um, he starts to browbeat her the same way her husband does. <laughs>